The Light Fantastic by Terry Pratchett, read by Nigel Planer. The sun rose slowly, as if it wasn't sure it was worth all the effort. Another disc day dawned, but very gradually, and this is why. When light encounters a strong magical field, it loses all sense of urgency. It slows right down. And on the disc world, the magic was embarrassingly strong, which meant that the soft yellow light of dawn flowed over the sleeping landscape like the caress of a gentle lover, or, as some would have it, like golden syrup. It paused to fill up valleys. It piled up against mountain ranges. When it reached Cori Celesti, the ten-mile spire of grey stone and green ice that marked the hub of the disc and was the home of its gods, it built up in heaps until it finally crashed in great lazy tsunami as silent as velvet across the dark landscape beyond. It was a sight to be seen on no other world. Of course, no other world was carried through the starry infinity on the backs of four giant elephants, who were themselves perched on the shell of a giant turtle. His name, or her name, according to another school of thought, was Great Artuin. He, or as it might be, she, will not take a central role in what follows, but it is vital to an understanding of the disc that he or she is there, down below the mines and sea ooze and fake fossil bones put there by a creator with nothing better to do than upset archaeologists and give them silly ideas. Great Artuin, the star turtle, shell-frosted with frozen methane, pitted with meteor craters, and scoured with asteroidal dust. Great Artuin, with eyes like ancient seas and a brain the size of a continent through which thoughts moved like little glittering glaciers. Great Artuin of the great slow sad flippers and star-polished carapace, labouring through the galactic night under the weight of the disc, as large as worlds, as old as time, as patient as a brick. Actually, the philosophers have got it all wrong. Great Artuin is in fact having a great time. Great Artuin is the only creature in the entire universe that knows exactly where it is going. Of course, philosophers have debated for years about where Great Artuin might be going, and have often said how worried they are that they might never find out. They're due to find out in about two months, and then they're really going to worry. Something else that has long worried the more imaginative philosophers on the disc is the question of Great Artuin's sex, and quite a lot of time and trouble has been spent in trying to establish it once and for all. In fact, as the great dark shape drifts past like an endless tortoise-shell hairbrush, the results of the latest effort are just coming into view. Tumbling past, totally out of control, is the bronze shell of the potent Voyager, a sort of Neolithic spaceship built and pushed over the edge by the astronomer-priests of Krull, 
which is conveniently situated on the very rim of the world, and proves whatever people say that there is such a thing as a free launch. Inside the ship is Two Flower, the disc's first tourist. He had recently spent some months exploring it, and is now rapidly leaving it for reasons that are rather complicated but have to do with an attempt to escape from Krull. This attempt has been 1,000% successful. But despite all the evidence that he may be the disc's last tourist as well, he is enjoying the view. Plunging along some two miles above him is Rincewind the Wizard, in what on the disc passes for a spacesuit. Picture it as a diving suit designed by men who have never seen the sea. Six months ago he was a perfectly ordinary failed wizard. Then he met Two Flower, was employed at an outrageous salary as his guide, and has spent most of the intervening time being shot at, terrorised, chased, and hanging from high places with no hope of salvation, or, as is now the case, dropping from high places. He isn't looking at the view because his past life keeps flashing in front of his eyes and getting in the way. He's learning why it is that when you put on a spacesuit, it's vitally important not to forget the helmet. A lot more could be included now to explain why these two are dropping out of the world and why Two Flowers' luggage, last seen desperately trying to follow him on hundreds of little legs, is no ordinary suitcase, but such questions take time and could be more trouble than they are worth. For example, it is said that someone at a party once asked the famous philosopher Lee Tin Weedle, Why are you here? And the reply took three years. What is far more important is an event happening way overhead, far above Artuin, the elephants and the rapidly expiring wizard. The very fabric of time and space is about to be put through the ringer. The air was greasy with the distinctive feel of magic, and acrid with the smoke of candles made of a black wax whose precise origin a wise man wouldn't inquire about. There was something very strange about this room deep in the cellars of Unseen University, the disc's premier college of magic. For one thing, it seemed to have too many dimensions, not exactly visible, just hovering out of eyeshot. The walls were covered with occult symbols, and most of the floor was taken up by the eightfold seal of stasis, generally agreed in magical circles to have all the stopping power of a well-aimed half-brick. The only furnishing in the room was a lectern of dark wood carved into the shape of a bird. Well, to be frank, into the shape of a winged thing it is probably best not to examine too closely. And on the lectern, fastened to it by a heavy chain covered in padlocks, was a book. A large, but not particularly impressive book. Other books in the university's libraries had covers inlaid with rare jewels and fascinating wood, or bound with dragon skin. This one was just a rather tatty leather. It looked the sort of book described in library catalogues as slightly foxed, although it would be more honest to admit that it looked as though it had been badgered, wolved, and possibly bared as well. Metal clasps held it shut. They weren't decorated, they were just very heavy, like the chain, which didn't so much attach the book to the lectern as tether it. They looked like the work of someone who had a pretty definite aim in mind and who had spent most of his life making training harnesses for elephants. The air thickened and swirled. The pages of the book began to crinkle in a quite horrible, deliberate way, and a blue light spilled out from between them. The silence of the room crowded in like a fist, 
slowly being clenched. Half a dozen wizards in their nightshirts were taking turns to peer in through the little grill in the door. No wizard could sleep with this sort of thing going on. The build-up of raw magic was rising through the university like a tide. "'Right,' said a voice. "'What's going on, and why wasn't I summoned?' Gulda Weatherwax, Supreme Grand Conjurer of the Order of the Silver Star, Lord Imperial of the Sacred Staff, Eighth Level Ipsissimus, and 304th Chancellor of Unseen University, wasn't simply an impressive sight, even in his red nightshirt with the hand-embroidered mystic runes, even in his long cap with the bobble on, even with the wee-willy-winky candlestick in his hand. He even managed to very nearly pull it off in fluffy pom-pom slippers as well. Six frightened faces turned towards him. Um, you, you were summoned, Lord, said one of the underwizards. That's why you're here, he added helpfully. "'I mean, why wasn't I summoned before?' snapped Golda, pushing his way to the grill. "'Um, before who, Lord?' said the wizard. Golda glared at him and ventured a quick glance through the grill. The air in the room was now sparkling with tiny flashes as dust motes incinerated in the flow of raw magic. The seal of stasis was beginning to blister and curl up at the edges.' The book in question was called The Octavo, and quite obviously it was no ordinary book. There are, of course, many famous books of magic. Some may talk of the Necrotelecomnicon, with its pages made of ancient lizard skin. Some may point to the book of Going Forth Around Elevenish, written by a mysterious and rather lazy Lamaic sect. Some may recall that the bumper-fun grimoire reputedly contains the one original joke left in the universe but they are all mere pamphlets when compared with the Octavo, which the creator of the universe reputedly left behind with characteristic absent-mindedness shortly after completing his major work. The eight spells imprisoned in its pages led a secret and complex life of their own, and it was generally believed that... Golda's brow furrowed as he stared into the troubled room. Of course, there were only seven spells now. Some young idiot of a student wizard had stolen a look at the book one day, and one of the spells had escaped and lodged in his mind. No one had ever managed to get to the bottom of how it had happened. What was his name now? Winswand? Octarine and purple sparks glittered on the spine of the book. A thin curl of smoke was beginning to rise from the lectern, and the heavy metal clasps that held the book shut were definitely beginning to look strained. "'Why are the spells so restless?' said one of the younger wizards. Golda shrugged. He couldn't show it, of course, but he was beginning to be really worried. As a skilled eighth-level wizard, he could see the half-imaginary shapes that appeared momentarily in the vibrating air, wheedling and beckoning. In much the same way that gnats appear before a thunderstorm, really heavy build-ups of magic always attracted things from the chaotic dungeon dimensions. Nasty things, all misplaced organs and spittle, forever searching for any gap through which they might sidle into the world of men. They won't be described, since even the pretty ones look like the offspring of an octopus and a bicycle. It is well known that things from undesirable universes are always seeking an entrance into this one, which is the psychic equivalent of handy for the buses and closer to the shops. This had to be stopped. 
I shall need a volunteer, he said firmly. There was a sudden silence. The only sound came from behind the door. It was the nasty little noise of metal parting under stress. Very well, then, he said. In that case, I shall need some silver tweezers, about two pints of cat's blood, a small whip, and a chair. It is said that the opposite of noise is silence. This isn't true. Silence is only the absence of noise. Silence would have been a terrible din compared to the sudden, soft implosion of noiselessness that hit the wizards with the force of an exploding dandelion clock. A thick column of spitting light sprang up from the book, hit the ceiling in a splash of flame and disappeared. Golda stared up at the hole, ignoring the smouldering patches in his beard. He pointed dramatically. To the upper cellars! he cried, and bounded up the stone stairs. Slippers flapping and nightshirts billowing, the other wizards followed him, falling over one another in their eagerness to be last. Nevertheless, they were all in time to see the fireball of occult potentiality disappear into the ceiling of the room above. <laughs> said the youngest wizard, and pointed to the floor. The room had been part of the library until the magic had drifted through, violently reassembling the possibility particles of everything in its path so it was reasonable to assume that the small purple newts had been part of the floor and the pineapple custard may once have been some books. And several of the wizards later swore that the small sad orangutan sitting in the middle of it all looked very much like the head librarian. Golda stared upwards. To the kitchen, he bellowed, wading through the custard to the next flight of stairs. No one ever found out what the great cast-iron cooking range had been turned into because it had broken down a wall and made good its escape before the dishevelled party of wild-eyed mages burst into the room. The vegetable chef was found much later, hiding in the soup cauldron, gibbering unhelpful things like The knuckles! The horrible knuckles! The last wisps of magic, now somewhat slowed, were disappearing into the ceiling. To the great hall! The stairs were much wider here and better lit. Panting and pineapple-flavoured, the fitter wizards got to the top by the time the fireball had reached the middle of the huge, draughty chamber that was the university's main hall. It hung motionless, except for the occasional small prominence that arched and spluttered across its surface. Wizards smoke, as everyone knows. That probably explained the chorus of coffin coughs and sore-tooth wheezes that erupted behind Golda as he stood appraising the situation and wondering if he dare look for somewhere to hide. He grabbed a frightened student. "'Get me seers, farseers, scryers, and within-looking men,' he barked. "'I want this studied.' Something was taking shape inside the fireball. Golda shielded his eyes and peered at the shape forming in front of him. There was no mistaking it. It was the universe. He was quite sure of this because he had a model of it in his study and it was generally agreed to be far more impressive than the real thing. Faced with the possibilities offered by seed pearls and silver filigree, the creator had been at a complete loss. But the tiny universe inside the fireball was uncannily, well, real. The only thing missing was colour. It was all in translucent misty white. There was Great Artuin and the Four Elephants and the disc itself. From this angle, Golda couldn't see the surface very well, but he knew with cold certainty that it would be absolutely accurately modelled. He could, though, just make out a miniature replica of Cori Celesti, 
upon whose utter peak the world's quarrelsome and somewhat bourgeois gods lived, in a palace of marble, alabaster, and uncut moquette three-piece suites they had chosen to call Dunmanifestin. It was always a considerable annoyance to any disc citizen with pretensions to culture that they were ruled by gods whose idea of an uplifting artistic experience was a musical doorbell. The little embryo universe began to move slowly, tilting. Calder tried to shout, but his voice refused to come out. Gently, but with the unstoppable force of an explosion, the shape expanded. He watched in horror, and then in astonishment, as it passed through him as lightly as a thought. He held out a hand, and watched the pale ghosts of rock strata stream through his fingers in busy silence. Great Artuin had already sunk peacefully below floor level, larger than a house. The wizards behind Golda were waist-deep in seas. A boat smaller than a thimble caught Golda's eye for a moment before the rush carried it through the walls and away. "'To the roof!' he managed, pointing a shaking finger skywards. Those wizards with enough marbles left to think with and enough breath to run followed him, running through continents that sleeted smoothly through the solid stone. It was a still night, tinted with the promise of dawn. A crescent moon was just setting. Ankh-Morpork, largest city in the lands around the Circle Sea, slept. That statement is not really true. On the one hand, those parts of the city which normally concern themselves with, for example, selling vegetables, shoeing horses, carving exquisite small jade ornaments, changing money and making tables, on the whole, slept, unless they had insomnia or had got up in the night, as it might be, to go to the lavatory. On the other hand, many of the less law-abiding citizens were wide awake, and, for instance, climbing through windows that didn't belong to them, slitting throats, mugging one another, listening to loud music in smoky cellars, and generally having a lot more fun. But most of the animals were asleep, except for the rats. And the bats, too, of course. And as far as the insects were concerned. The point is that descriptive writing is very rarely entirely accurate, and during the reign of Olaf Quimby II, as patrician of Ankh, some legislation was passed in a determined attempt to put a stop to this sort of thing and introduce some honesty into reporting. Thus, if a legend said of a notable hero that all men spoke of his prowess, any bard who valued his life would add hastily, except for a couple of people in his home village who thought he was a liar, and quite a lot of other people who had never really heard of him. Poetic simile was strictly limited to statements like... His mighty steed was as fleet as the wind on a fairly calm day, say about force three. And any loose talk about a beloved having a face that launched a thousand ships would have to be backed by evidence that the object of desire did indeed look like a bottle of champagne. Quimby was eventually killed by a disgruntled poet during an experiment conducted in the palace grounds to prove the disputed accuracy of the proverb, The pen is mightier than the sword and in his memory it was amended to include the phrase only if the sword is very small and the pen is very sharp. So approximately 67, maybe 68 percent of the city slept. Not that the other citizens, creeping about on their generally unlawful occasions, noticed the pale tide streaming through the streets. Only the wizards, used to seeing the invisible, watched it foam across the distant fields. The disc, being flat has no real horizon. 
Any adventurous sailors who got funny ideas from staring at eggs and oranges for too long and set out for the Antipodes soon learned that the reason why distant ships sometimes looked as though they were disappearing over the edge of the world was that they were disappearing over the edge of the world. But there was still a limit even to Golder's vision in the mist-swirled, dust-filled air. He looked up. Looming high over the university was the grim and ancient Tower of Art, said to be the oldest building on the disc, with its famous spiral staircase of 8,888 steps. From its crenellated roof, the haunt of ravens and disconcertingly alert gargoyles, a wizard might see to the very edge of the disc. After spending ten minutes or so coughing horribly, of course. Sod that, he muttered. What's the good of being a wizard after all? Aviento Thessalus, I would fly. To me, spirits of air and darkness. He spread a gnarled hand and pointed to a piece of crumbling parapet. Octarine fire sprouted from under his nicotine-stained nails and burst against the rotting stone far above. It fell. By a finely calculated exchange of velocities, Golda rose, nightshirt flapping around his bony legs. Higher and higher he soared, hurtling through the pale light, like a... like a... all right, like an elderly but powerful wizard being propelled upwards by an expertly judged thumb on the scales of the universe. He landed in a litter of old nests, caught his balance, and stared down at the vertiginous view of a disc dawn. At this time of the long year, the Circle Sea was almost on the sunset side of Cori Celeste, and as the daylight sloshed down into the lands around Ankh Morpork, the shadow of the mountain scythed across the landscape like the gnomon of God's sundial. But, nightwards, racing the slow light towards the edge of the world, a line of white mist surged on. There was a crackling of dry twigs behind him. He turned to see Umper Truman, second in command of the order, who had been the only other wizard able to keep up. Golder ignored him for a moment, taking care only to keep a firm grip of the stonework and strengthen his personal spells of protection. Promotion was slow in a profession that traditionally bestowed long life, and it was accepted that younger wizards would frequently seek advancement via dead men's curly shoes, having previously emptied them of their occupants. Besides, there was something disquieting about young Truman. He didn't smoke, only drank boiled water, and Golder had the nasty suspicion that he was clever. He didn't smile often enough, and he liked figures and the sort of organisation charts that show lots of squares with arrows pointing to other squares. In short, he was the sort of man who could use the word personnel and mean it. The whole of the visible disc was now covered with a shimmering white skin that fitted it perfectly. Golder looked down at his own hands and saw them covered with a pale network of shining threads that followed every movement. He recognised this kind of spell. He'd used them himself. But his had been smaller, much smaller. It's a change spell, said Truman. The whole world is being changed. Some people thought Golda Grimbley would have had the decency to put an exclamation mark on the end of a statement like that. There was the faintest of pure sounds, high and sharp, like the breaking of a mouse's heart. What was that? he said. Truman cocked his head. Uh, C-sharp, I think, he said. Golda said nothing. The white shimmer had vanished, and the first sounds of the waking city began to filter up to the two wizards. Everything seemed exactly the same as it had before. All that, just to make things stay the same? 
He patted his nightshirt pockets distractedly and finally found what he was looking for, lodged behind his ear. He put the soggy dog end in his mouth, called up mystical fire from between his fingers, and dragged hard on the wretched roll-up until little blue lights flashed in front of his eyes. He coughed once or twice. He was thinking very hard indeed. He was trying to remember if any gods owed him any favours. In fact, the gods were as puzzled by all this as the wizards were, but they were powerless to do anything, and in any case were engaged in an eons-old battle with ice giants, who had refused to return the lawnmower. But some clue as to what actually had happened might be found in the fact that Rincewind, whose past life had just got up to a quite interesting bit when he was fifteen, suddenly found himself not dying after all, but hanging upside down in a pine tree. He got down easily by dropping uncontrollably from branch to branch until he landed on his head in a pile of pine needles where he lay gasping for breath and wishing he'd been a better person. Somewhere, he knew, there had to be a perfectly logical connection. One minute one happens to be dying, having dropped off the rim of the world, and the next one is upside down in a tree. As always happened at times like this, the spell rose up in his mind. Rincewind had been generally reckoned by his tutors to be a natural wizard in the same way that fish are natural mountaineers. He probably would have been thrown out of Unseen University anyway. He couldn't remember spells and smoking made him feel ill. But what had really caused trouble was all that stupid business about sneaking into the room where the octavo was chained and opening it. And what made the trouble even worse was that no one could figure out why all the locks had temporarily become unlocked. The spell wasn't a demanding lodger, it just sat there like an old toad at the bottom of a pond. But whenever Rincewind was feeling really tired or very afraid, it tried to get itself said. No one knew what would happen if one of the eight great spells was said by itself, but the general agreement was that the best place from which to watch the effects would be the next universe. It was a weird thought to have, lying on a heap of pine needles just after falling off the edge of the world, but Rincewind had a feeling that the spell wanted to keep him alive. Suits me, he thought. He sat up and looked at the trees. Rincewind was a city wizard, and although he was aware that there were various differences among types of tree by which their nearest and dearest could tell them apart, the only thing he knew for certain was that the end without the leaves on fitted into the ground. There were far too many of them, arranged with absolutely no sense of order. The place hadn't been swept for ages. He remembered something about being able to tell where you were by looking at which side of a tree the moss grows on. These trees had moss everywhere, and wooden warts, and scrabbly old branches. If trees were people, these trees would be sitting in rocking chairs. Rincewind gave the nearest one to kick. With unerring aim, it dropped an acorn on him. He said, Ow! The tree, in a voice like a very old door swinging open, said, Serves you right. There was a long silence. Then Rincewind said, Did you say that? Yes. And that too? Yes. Oh. He thought for a bit. Then he tried, I suppose you wouldn't happen to know the way out of the forest, possibly, by any chance? No. I don't get about much, said the tree. Fairly boring life, I imagine, said Rincewind. I wouldn't know. I've never been anything else, said the tree. Rincewind looked at it closely. It seemed pretty much like every other tree he'd seen. Are you magical, he said. 
No one's ever said, said the tree. I suppose so. Rincewind thought. I can't be talking to a tree. If I was talking to a tree, I'd be mad, and I'm not mad, so trees can't talk. Goodbye, he said firmly. Hey, don't go, the tree began, and then realised the hopelessness of it all. It watched him stagger off through the bushes and settle down to feeling the sun on its leaves, the slurp and gurgle of the water in its roots, and the very ebb and flow of its sap in response to the natural tug of the sun and moon. Boring, it thought. What a strange thing to say. Trees can be bored, of course. Beetles do it all the time, but I don't think that that was what he was trying to mean. And can you actually be anything else? In fact, Rincewind never spoke to this particular tree again, but from that brief conversation it spun the basis of the first tree religion, which in time swept the forests of the world. Its tenet of faith was this. A tree that was a good tree and led a clean, decent and upstanding life could be assured of a future life after death. If it was very good indeed, it would eventually be reincarnated as 5,000 rolls of lavatory paper. A few miles away, Two Flower was also getting over his surprise at finding himself back on the disc. He was sitting on the hull of the potent voyager as it gurgled gradually under the dark waters of a large lake surrounded by trees. Strangely enough, he was not particularly worried. Two Flower was a tourist, the first of the species to evolve on the disc, and fundamental to his very existence was the rock-hard belief that nothing bad could really happen to him because he was not involved. He also believed that anyone could understand anything he said, provided he spoke loudly and slowly, that people were basically trustworthy and that anything could be sorted out among men of goodwill if they just acted sensibly. On the face of it, this gave him a survival value marginally less than, say, a soap herring, but to Rincewind's amazement, it all seemed to work, and the little man's total obliviousness to all forms of danger somehow made danger so discouraged that it gave up and went away. Merely being faced with drowning stood no chance. Twoflower was quite certain that in a well-organized society, people would not be allowed to go around getting drowned. He was a little bothered, though, about where his luggage had got to. But he comforted himself with the knowledge that it was made of sapient pearwood, and ought to be intelligent enough to look after itself. In yet another part of the forest, a young shaman was undergoing a very essential part of his training. He had eaten of the sacred toadstool, he had smoked the holy rhizome, and had carefully powdered up and inserted into various orifices the mystic mushroom and now, sitting cross-legged under a pine tree, he was concentrating firstly on making contact with the strange and wonderful secrets at the heart of being, but mainly on stopping the top of his head from unscrewing and floating away. Blue four-side triangles pinwheeled across his vision. Occasionally he smiled knowingly at nothing very much and said things like, Wow! and <sighs> There was a movement in the air, and what he later described as like a sort of explosion, only backwards, you know. And suddenly, where there had only been nothing, there was a large battered wooden chest. It landed heavily on the leaf mould, extended dozens of little legs, and turned round ponderously to look at the shaman. That is to say, it had no face, but even through the mycological haze, he was horribly aware that it was looking at him. And not a nice look, either. 
It was amazing how baleful a keyhole and a couple of knotholes could be. To his intense relief, it gave a sort of wooden shrug and set off through the trees at a canter. With superhuman effort, the shaman recalled the correct sequence of movements for standing up and even managed a couple of steps before he looked down and gave up, having run out of legs. Rincewind, meanwhile, had found a path. It wound about a good deal, and he would have been happier if it had been cobbled, but following it gave him something to do. Several trees tried to strike up a conversation, but Rincewind was nearly certain that this was not normal behaviour for trees and ignored them. The day lengthened. There was no sound but the murmur of nasty little stinging insects, the occasional crack of a falling branch, and the whispering of the trees discussing religion and the trouble with squirrels. Rincewind began to feel very lonely. He imagined himself living in the woods forever, sleeping on leaves and eating, and eating whatever there was to eat in the woods. Trees, he supposed, and nuts and berries. He would have to... Rincewind! There, coming up the path, was Two Flower, dripping wet but beaming with delight. The luggage trotted along behind him. Anything made of the wood would follow its owner anywhere, and it was often used to make luggage for the grave goods of very rich dead kings who wanted to be sure of starting a new life in the next world with clean underwear. Rincewind sighed. Up to now, he'd thought the day couldn't possibly get worse. It began to rain a particularly wet and cold rain. Rincewind and Two Flower sat under a tree and watched it. Rincewind? Mm. Why are we here? Well, some say that the creator of the universe made the disc and everything on it. Others say that it's all a very complicated story involving the testicles of the sky god and the milk of the celestial cow, and some even hold that we're all just due to the total random accretion of probability particles. But if you mean why are we here, as opposed to falling off the disc, I haven't the faintest idea. It's probably all some ghastly mistake. Oh, do you think there's anything to eat in this forest? Yes, said the wizard bitterly. Us. I've got some acorns, if you like, said the tree helpfully. They sat in damp silence for some moments. Rincewind, the tree said, Trees can't talk, snapped Rincewind. It's very important to remember that. But you just heard. Rincewind sighed. Look, he said, it's all down to simple biology, isn't it? If you're going to talk, you need the right equipment, like lungs and lips and uh, vocal cords, said the tree. Yeah, them, said Rincewind. He shut up and stared gloomily at the rain. "'I thought wizards knew all about trees and wild food and things,' said Two Flower reproachfully. It was very seldom that anything in his voice suggested that he thought of Rincewind as anything other than a magnificent enchanter, and the wizard was stung into action. "'I do, I do,' he snapped. "'Well, what kind of tree is this?' said the tourist. Rincewind looked up. "'Beech,' he said firmly. "'Actually,' began the tree, and shut up quickly. It had caught Rincewind's look. "'Those things up there look like acorns,' said Two Flower. "'Yes, well, this is the sessile or heptocarpic variety,' said Rincewind. "'The nuts look very much like acorns. In fact, they can fool practically anybody.' "'Gosh,' said Two Flower, "'and what's that bush over there?' 
mistletoe. But it's got thorns and red berries. Well, said Rincewind sternly, and stared hard at him. Two flower broke first. Nothing, he said meekly. I must have been misinformed. Right. But there's some big mushrooms under it. Can you eat them? Rincewind looked at them cautiously. They were indeed very big, and had red and white spotted caps. They were in fact a variety that the local shaman, who at this point was some miles away making friends with a rock, would only eat after first attaching one leg to a large stone with a rope. There was nothing for it but to go out in the rain and look at them. He knelt down in the leaf mould and peered under the cap. After a while he said weakly, No, no good to eat at all. Why? called Two Flower. Are the gills the wrong shade of yellow? No, not really. I expect the stems haven't got the right kind of fluting, then. They look okay, actually. The cap, then, I expect the cap is the wrong colour, said Two Flower. Not sure about that. Well, then, why can't you eat them? Rincewind coughed. It's the little doors and windows, he said wretchedly. It's a dead giveaway. Thunder rolled across the unseen university. Rain poured over its roofs and gurgled out of its gargoyles, although one or two of the more cunning ones had scuttled off to shelter among the maze of tiles. Far below, in the Great Hall, the eight most powerful wizards on the Discworld gathered at the angles of a ceremonial octogram. Actually, they probably weren't the most powerful, if truth were known, but they certainly had great powers of survival, which in the highly competitive world of magic was pretty much the same thing. Behind every wizard of the eighth rank were half a dozen seventh-rank wizards trying to bump him off, and senior wizards had to develop an inquiring attitude to, for example, scorpions in their bed. An ancient proverb summed it up. When a wizard is tired of looking for broken glass in his dinner, it ran, he is tired of life. The oldest wizard, grey-hulled spold of the ancient and truly original sages of the unbroken circle, leaned heavily on his carven staff and spake thusly. Get on with it, weatherwax. My feet are giving me jip. Golder, who had merely paused for effect, glared at him. Very well, then. I will be brief. Jolly good. We all sought guidance as to the events of this morning. Can anyone among us say he received it? The wizards looked sidelong at one another. Nowhere outside a trades union conference fraternal benefit night can so much mutual distrust and suspicion be found as among a gathering of senior enchanters. But the plain fact was that the day had gone very badly. Normally, informative demons, summoned abruptly from the dungeon dimensions, had looked sheepish and sidled away when questioned. Magic mirrors had cracked. Tarot cards had mysteriously become blank. Crystal balls had gone all cloudy. Even tea leaves, normally scorned by wizards as frivolous and unworthy of contemplation, had clustered together at the bottom of cups and refused to move. In short, the assembled wizards were at a loss. There was a general murmur of agreement. And therefore I propose we perform the rite of Ashk-Ente, said Golda dramatically. He had to admit that he had hoped for a better response, something along the lines of, well, No, not the rite of Ashk-Ente. Man was not meant to meddle with such things. In fact, there was a general mutter of approval. Good idea. Seems reasonable. Um, we'll get on with it, then. 
Slightly put out, he summoned a procession of lesser wizards who carried various magical implements into the hall. It has already been hinted that around this time there was some disagreement among the fraternity of wizards about how to practice magic. Younger wizards in particular went about saying that it was time that magic started to update its image and that they should all stop mucking about with bits of wax and bone and put the whole thing on a properly organised basis with research programmes and three-day conventions in good hotels where they could read papers with titles like Wither Geomancy and The Role of Seven League Boots in a Caring Society. Truman, for example, hardly ever did any magic these days, but ran the order with hourglass efficiency and wrote lots of memos and had a big charter on his office wall covered with coloured blobs and flags and lines that no one else really understood, but which looked very impressive. The other type of wizard thought all this was so much marsh gas and wouldn't have anything to do with an image unless it was made of wax and had pins stuck in it. The heads of the eight orders were all of this persuasion, traditionalists to a mage, and the utensils that were heaped around the octogram had a definite no-nonsense occult look about them. Ram's horns, skulls, baroque metalwork and heavy candles were much in evidence, despite the discovery by younger wizards that the rite of Ashk Enti could perfectly well be performed with three small bits of wood and four cubic centimetres of mouse blood. The preparations normally took several hours, but the combined powers of the senior wizards shortened it considerably, and after a mere forty minutes, Golda chanted the final words of the spell. They hung in front of him for a moment before dissolving. The air in the centre of the octogram shimmered and thickened, and suddenly contained a tall, dark figure. Most of it was hidden by a black robe and hood, and this was probably just as well. It had a long scythe in one hand, and one couldn't help noticing that what should have been fingers was simply white bone. The other skeletal hand held small cubes of cheese and pineapple on a stick. Well, said Death in a voice with all the warmth and colour of an iceberg. He caught the wizard's gaze and glanced down at the stick. I was at a party, he added, a shade reproachfully. O oh, creature of earth and darkness, we do charge thee to abjure from began Golda in a firm, commanding voice. Death nodded. Yes, yes, I know all that. Why have you summoned me? It is said that you can see both the past and the future, said Golda, a little sulkily, because the big speech of binding and conjuration was one he rather liked, and people said he was very good at it. That is absolutely correct. Then perhaps you can tell us what exactly it was that happened this morning, said Golda. He pulled himself together and added loudly, I command this by Azimrotha, by Tchikel, by... All right, you've made your point. What precisely was it you wished to know? Quite a lot of things happened this morning. People were born, people died, all the trees grew a bit taller, ripples made an interesting pattern on the sea. I mean about the octavo, said Golda coldly. That? Oh, that was just a readjustment of reality. I understand the octavo was anxious not to lose the eighth spell. It was dropping off the disc, apparently.
Hold on, hold on, said Golda. He scratched his chin. Are we talking about the one inside the head of Rincewind? Tall, thin man? Bit scraggy? The one... That he has been carrying around all these years. Yes. Golda frowned. It seemed a lot of trouble to go to. Everyone knew that when a wizard died, all the spells in his head would go free, so why bother to save Rincewind? The spell would just float back eventually. Any idea why? he said, without thinking, and then remembering himself in time, added hastily, By Irip and Kcharla, I do abjure thee, and... I wish you wouldn't keep doing that. All that I know is that all the spells have to be set together next Hogswatch night, or the disc will be destroyed. Speak up there, demanded Greyhound Spold. Shut up, said Golda. Me? No, him, daft old. I heard that, snapped Spold. You young people? He stopped. Death was looking at him thoughtfully, as if he was trying to remember his face. Look, said Golda. Just repeat that bit again, will you? The disc will be what? Destroyed! Can I go now? I left my drink. Hang on, said Golda hurriedly. By Celliliki and Orizoni and so forth. What do you mean, destroyed? It's an ancient prophecy written on the inner walls of the Great Pyramid of Tsort. The word destroyed seems quite self-explanatory to me. That's all you can tell us? Yes. But Hogswatch Night is only two months away. Yes. At least you can tell us where Rincewind is now. Death shrugged. It was a gesture he was particularly well built for. The forests of Skund, rimwoods of the Ramtop Mountains. What is he doing there? Feeling very sorry for himself. Oh. Now may I go? Golda nodded distractedly. He had been thinking wistfully of the banishment ritual which started Begone Foul Shade and had some rather impressive passages which he had been practising, but somehow he couldn't work up any enthusiasm. Oh, yes, he said. Thank you, yes. And then, because it's as well not to make enemies even among the creatures of the night, he added politely, I hope it is a good party. Death didn't answer. He was looking at Spold in the same way that a dog looks at a bone, only in this case things were more or less the other way round. I said I hope it is a good party, said Golda loudly. At the moment it is. I think it might go downhill very quickly at midnight. Why? That's when they think I'll be taking my mask off. He vanished, leaving only a cocktail stick and a short paper streamer behind. There had been an unseen observer of all this. It was, of course, entirely against the rules, but Trumon knew all about rules and had always considered they were for making, not obeying. Long before the eight mages had got down to some serious arguing about what the apparition had meant, he was down in the main levels of the university library. 
It was an awe-inspiring place. Many of the books were magical, and the important thing to remember about grimoires is that they are deadly in the hands of any librarian who cares about order, because he's bound to stick them all on the same shelf. This is not a good idea with books that tend to leak magic, because more than one or two of them together form a critical black mass. On top of that, many of the lesser spells are quite particular about the company they keep, and tend to express any objections by hurling their books viciously across the room. And, of course, there is always the half-felt presence of the things from the dungeon dimensions, clustering around the magical leakage and constantly probing the walls of reality. The job of magical librarian, who has to spend his working days in this sort of highly charged atmosphere, is a high-risk occupation. The head librarian was sitting on top of his desk, quietly peeling an orange, and was well aware of that. He glanced up when Truman entered. I'm looking for anything we've got on the Pyramid of Chut, said Truman. He'd come prepared. He took a banana out of his pocket. The librarian looked at it mournfully and then flopped down heavily on the floor. Truman found a soft hand poked gently into his, and the librarian led the way, waddling sadly between the bookshelves. It was like holding a little leather glove. Around them the books sizzled and sparked with the occasional discharge of undirected magic flashing over to the carefully placed earthing rods nailed on the shelves. There was a tinny blue smell, and just at the very limit of hearing the horrible chittering of the dungeon creatures. Like many other parts of Unseen University, the library occupied rather more space than its outside dimensions would suggest, because magic distorts space in strange ways, and it was probably the only library in the universe with Mobius shelves. But the librarian's mental catalogue was ticking over perfectly. He stopped by a soaring stack of musty books and swung himself up into the darkness. There was the sound of rustling paper, and a cloud of dust floated down to Trumon. Then the librarian was back, a slim volume in his hands. Ick, he said. Truman took it gingerly. The cover was scratched and very dog-eared. The gold of its lettering had long ago curled off, but he could just make out in the old magic tongue of the Tsort Valley the words, Ayit griet teyempul hit tsort e history miestical. Ick, said the librarian anxiously. Truman turned the pages cautiously. He wasn't very good at languages. He'd always found them highly inefficient things which by rights ought to be replaced by some sort of easily understood numerical system. But this seemed exactly what he was looking for. There were whole pages covered with meaningful hieroglyphs. Is this the only book you've got about the Pyramid of Sort? He said slowly. Ook. You're quite sure? Ook. Trumon listened. He could hear a long way off the sound of approaching feet and arguing voices. But he'd been prepared for that, too. He reached into his pocket. Would you like another banana? He said. The forest of Skund was indeed enchanted, which was nothing unusual on the disc, and was also the only forest in the whole universe to be called, in the local language, Your Finger, You Fool, which was the literal meaning of the word Skund. 
The reason for this is regrettably all too common. When the first explorers from the warm lands around the Circle Sea travelled into the chilly hinterland, they filled in the blank spaces on their maps by grabbing the nearest native, pointing at some distant landmark, speaking very clearly in a loud voice, and writing down whatever the bemused man told them. Thus were immortalised in generations of atlases such geographical oddities as just a mountain, I don't know, what, and of course, your finger, you fool. Rain clouds clustered around the bald heights of Mount Ulskunrahod. Who is this fool who does not know what a mountain is? And the luggage settled itself more comfortably under a dripping tree, which tried unsuccessfully to strike up a conversation. Two Flower and Rincewind were arguing. The person they were arguing about sat on his mushroom and watched them with interest. He looked like someone who smelled like someone who lived in a mushroom, and that bothered Two Flower. Well, why hasn't he got a red hat? Rincewind hesitated, desperately trying to imagine what Two Flower was getting at. What? he said, giving in. He should have a red hat, said Two Flower, and he certainly ought to be cleaner and more sort of jolly. He doesn't look like any sort of gnome to me. What are you going on about? Look at that beard, said Two Flower sternly. I've seen better beards on a piece of cheese. Look, he's six inches high and he lives in a mushroom, snarled Rincewind. Of course he's a bloody gnome. We've only got his word for it. Rincewind looked down at the gnome. Excuse me, he said. He took Two Flower to the other side of the clearing. Listen he said between his teeth. If he was fifteen feet tall, and he said he was a giant, we'd only have his word for that too, wouldn't we? He could be a goblin, said Two Flower defiantly. Rincewind looked back at the tiny figure, which was industriously picking its nose. Well, he said, so what? Gnome, goblin, pixie, so what? No, not a pixie, said Two Flower firmly. Pixies, they wear these sort of green combinations and they have pointy caps and little knobbly antenna thingies sticking out of their heads. I've seen pictures. Where? Two Flower hesitated and looked at his feet. I think it was called the... Um, mutter, 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 mutter. The what? Called the what? The little man took a sudden interest in the backs of his hands. The little folks book of flower fairies he muttered. Rincewind looked blank. It's a book on how to avoid them, he said. Oh, no, said Two Flower hurriedly. It tells you where to look for them. I can remember the pictures now. A dreamy look came over his face, and Rincewind groaned inwardly. There was even a special fairy that came and took your teeth away. What, came and pulled out your actual teeth? No, no, you're wrong. I mean, after they'd fallen out. What you did was you put the tooth under your pillow, and the fairy came and took it away and left a rhino piece. Why? Why what? Why did it collect teeth? It just did. Rincewind formed a mental picture of some strange entity living in a castle made of teeth. It was the kind of mental picture you tried to forget, unsuccessfully. <sighs> he said, red hats. He wondered whether to enlighten the tourist about what life was really like when a frog was a good meal, a rabbit hole a useful place to shelter out of the rain, and an owl a drifting silent terror in the night. Moleskin trousers sounded quaint unless you personally had to remove them from their original owner when the vicious little sod was cornered in his burrow. 
As for red hats, anyone who went around a forest looking bright and conspicuous would only do so very, very briefly. He wanted to say, look, the life of gnomes and goblins is nasty, brutish, and short. So were they. He wanted to say all this and couldn't. For a man with an itch to see the whole of infinity, Two Flower never actually moved outside his own head. Telling him the truth would be like kicking a spaniel. <coughs> said a voice by his foot. He looked down. The gnome, who had introduced himself as Swires, looked up. Rincewind had a very good ear for languages. The gnome had just said, I've got some newt sorbet left over from yesterday. Sounds wonderful, said Rincewind. Swires gave him another prod in the ankle. The other bigger, is he all right? He said solicitously. He's just suffering from reality shock, said Rincewind. You haven't got a red hat by any chance? Wheat? Mm, it's just a thought. I know where there's some food for beggars, said the gnome. And shelter too, it's not far. Rincewind looked at the lowering sky. The daylight was draining out of the landscape and the clouds looked as if they had heard about snow and were considering the idea. Of course, people who lived in mushrooms couldn't necessarily be trusted, but right now a trap baited with a hot meal and clean sheets would have had the wizard hammering to get in. They set off. After a few seconds, the luggage got carefully to its feet and started to follow. Psst! It turned carefully, little legs moving up in a complicated pattern, and appeared to look up. Is it good being joinery? said the tree anxiously. Did it hurt? The luggage seemed to think about this. Every brass handle, every knothole radiated extreme concentration. Then it shrugged its lid and waddled away. The tree sighed and shook a few dead leaves out of its twigs. The cottage was small, tumble-down, and as ornate as a doily. Some mad whittler had got to work on it, Rincewind decided, and had created terrible havoc before he could be dragged away. Every door, every shutter, had its clusters of wooden grapes and half-moon cutouts, and there were massed outbreaks of fretwork pine cones all over the walls. He half expected a giant cuckoo to come hurtling out of an upper window. What he also noticed was the characteristic greasy feel in the air. Tiny green and purple sparks flashed from his fingernails. Strong magical field, he muttered. A hundred million thaums at least. A thaum is the basic unit of magical strength. It has been universally established as the amount of magic needed to create one small white pigeon or three normal-sized billiard balls. End of CD 1